Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Tonight we're going to be continuing our series on the temptations of Christ. And this is where we look at it from different angles, starting with our home churches, where we read the verse together and just give our initial thoughts and gut feelings. And then we're going to be looking at it through three different angles over the course of this month. Um, And the angle I'm going to be looking at it from is how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament through the temptations of Christ. And I think this is an important distinction to make because if I remember back to when I was a kid in Sunday school and I remember the teacher would say, why did Jesus come to the world? And my hand would go up and I would say to forgive us our sins or to die on the cross and of course I would always get that question right. And yes, that is the correct answer, but it's not the complete answer. And I didn't really realise that until later on in my life. Jesus came to the world more than just to die on the cross. He came to live as well. And what he did over the course of the 30 years of his life was really important and fulfilled a lot of Old Testament prophecy. If we're saying that only the cross mattered, then we'll be saying, like, well, the 30 years leading up to the crucifixion didn't have any relevance. His life was important as well. It's like saying that if only the cross mattered, the Old Testament doesn't really matter. Like the original covenant with Abraham doesn't really matter. Like the relationship God had with Israel doesn't really matter. And if we go down that path and actually take us to some really weird and twisted and probably dark versions of theology. And so we need to make sure we understand this distinction. To say that only the cross matters, it's like saying that Now we have the answer, the question no longer matters. Or now we have the child, the mother no longer matters. But just like the answer completes the question, and just like the uh, child fulfills the mother, Jesus comes to answer and fulfill the Old Testament and the prophecies therein. And so you can't have one without the other. It's two sides of the same story. Uh, There's a scholar, D.A. Carson, who says this. He says, Jesus does not conceive of his life and ministry in terms of opposition to the Old Testament, but in terms of bringing to fruition that towards which it points. Thus, the law and the prophets find their valid continuity in terms of their outworking in Jesus. And so Jesus follows through with what the Old Testament was pointing at. Now, the crucifixion is important, absolutely. It's the climax of the human redemption story, the most important thing since creation itself. And all of the past, before the crucifixion, looked forward to, to the coming Messiah and with an expectant heart. And now we are post the crucifixion. We always look back at the crucifixion. It's the climax of the human salvation story. And so, yes, it's important, but Jesus' life was also very important as well. And so with that in mind, let's read the, uh, the passage of Scripture about the temptations of Christ. I've got here uh, from Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And, and actually, I've, I've taken this from the message version. Now, I've, I've grown in a new appreciation for the message. I used to think it was kind of like the, you know, the Bible in layman's terms. It was kind of dumbed down a bit or with a bit of jargon or something like that. But I've recently just finished uh, going through Eugene Peterson's uh, biography and just understanding now the heart and the spirit he wrote this translation in, wanting to put scripture into our terms, into metaphors and analogies that we would understand today, I really find it's beautiful. And so I've been reading a lot more of the, uh, the message lately. So anyway, here goes. 
Next, Jesus was taken into the wild by the Spirit for the test. The devil was ready to give it. Jesus prepared for the test by fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. That left him, of course, in an extreme state of hunger, which the devil took advantage of in the first test. Since you are the son of God, sorry, since you are God's son, speak the word that will turn these stones into loaves of bread. Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy. It takes more than bread to stay alive. It takes a steady stream of words from God's mouth. The second test, the devil took him to the holy city. He sat him on top of the temple and said, since you are God's son, jump. The devil goaded him by quoting Psalms 91. He has placed you in the care of angels. They will catch you so you won't as much stub your toe on a stone. Jesus countered with another citation from Deuteronomy. Don't you dare put the Lord your God to the test. The devil... um, Sorry, don't you dare test the Lord your God. For the third test, the devil took him to the peak of a huge mountain. He jested expansively, pointing out all of the earth's kingdoms and how glorious they all were. He said, they're yours, lock, stock and barrel. Just go down on your knees and worship me and they're yours. Jesus' refusal was curt. Beat it, Satan. He backed his rebuke with a third quotation from Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and only him. Serve him with absolute single-heartedness. The test was over. The devil left. And in his place, angels. Angels came and took care of Jesus' needs. And so through these temptations, we're familiar with this story. The devil comes to Jesus three times to tempt him in different ways, and each time Jesus pushes back. But before we can discover what Jesus is actually doing, we need to understand just who he is in terms of his lineage, in terms of where he has come from, what has happened before him. And so you see, since the exile from the Garden of Eden, there's been a prophecy hovering over that of mankind. In Genesis 3.15, God is talking to Satan or the, the serpent saying, I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound your head and you'll wound his heel. And so one of the very first questions the Old Testament is asking is, who will be this person to rise up and crush the serpent's head? Who will be this Messiah? And over the course of the Old Testament, we have seen many different people, candidates to be this Messiah, rise up. We call them Christ figures. And through the Old Testament, different Christ figures have risen up and they've been tested, but every single one of them fell for one reason or another. And so just to go through just a few of them, because there's many in the Old Testament, uh, one of the first cabs off the rank we have is Noah. And Noah comes to us as, one, as a saviour-type Christ figure. And of course, he gets his family and all the animals onto the ark. And then when he uh, leaves the ark, after the waters have uh, gone back down again, it's almost like Noah is a new Adam. He's a new first creation in a new world delivered by God. But what does Noah do? He gets drunk and exposes himself to his family and he brings shame upon himself and he brings shame upon his family as well. And so he sees himself unfit to be the Messiah. Several generations later, we get Abraham. And Abraham is a faithful man of God. And he comes to us as a father-type Christ figure. Uh, But Abraham's faith wasn't solid enough. And there was a point where he was afraid for his life. And so Uh, He tried to pass his wife, Sarah, off as his sister so he wouldn't be killed and her taken uh, to be someone else's wife. And so his faith in God 
wasn't flawless. He wasn't perfect like the Messiah needed to be perfect. And so he was not fit to be Messiah either. Later on, we then get Moses. And for all the great work that Moses did leading the Israelites out of Egypt, again, another saviour type Christ figure, he still gets angry and grumbles as the Israelites get angry and grumble in the wilderness. And his uh, doubt and his frustration sees him not enter the promised land with the rest of the first generation of Israelites. And so he's not the Messiah either. And then we get David, and David's a great candidate. He's a, fa- uh, he's a shepherd, he's a warrior, he's a father, he's a king. But later on in his life, he gets tempted and takes um, uh, Bathsheba to his bed and then he has her husband killed, and there's too much blood on his hands from all the battle for him to build the temple, and so he's not fit to be Messiah either. Solomon's then a great one, because he's actually able to build the temple, and so it's like him bringing heaven to earth. But Solomon's lust for women and other cultures and other gods saw him unfit as well. And the final one I'll mention is Jonah. And Jonah... The prophet, we all know, gets swallowed by the fish and gets spat back up and he goes to Nineveh and he actually gets upset and angry because the Ninevites turn around and repent and come back to God. And because he's frustrated at them, it shows that he doesn't share the same global, even universal vision that God has for salvation. And so he's unfit as well. Even though Jesus still uses Jonah. He points to Jonah when alluding to the cross, saying, the only sign I'll give you is the sign of Jonah. Jonah's still unfit to be the Messiah. And so after all of these Christ figures have risen up, been tested and fallen again and again and again, we finally get Jesus coming onto the scene. And Jesus, he doesn't come to us as anything really special. He's just, he's not from a, a wealthy family. He's not a king. He's just a son of a simple carpenter. He's born out of wedlock. And so that's why uh, people didn't even think he was a possible candidate. We get quotes like, uh, can anything good possibly come from Nazareth? And so no one's expecting Jesus to be the prophesied Messiah. Yet after his baptism, he's led out into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And after that, he is tempted and provoked by Satan, just like the other Christ figures that came before him. And the devil is trying to work out, is this really the Messiah? Is this really the Son of God? Or is this just another human who I can corrupt and take down as well? And so let's just quickly go over the three temptations because it's hard to talk about the temptations without talking about the temptations. So the first one, Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm currently doing some intermittent fasting. I'm fasting for 16 hours a day, and then I eat during an eight-hour period. And by the end of those 16 hours, sometimes I'm ready to eat rocks. So after 40 days, I can't imagine how hungry Jesus must be. Anyway, so the first test is testing his physicality. So Satan comes to Jesus and says, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And that word, if, is a really interesting one here, because if you are the Son of God, it's like he's saying... If you are different to all these other Christ figures that have come before you, prove it. Prove to me that you are the Son of God. Prove to me that you are divine and turn these rocks into bread. But there's another translation to that word, if. It can also be translated into the word, since. And I think this one's actually probably a bit more accurate because I think Satan did know who Jesus was. And so if you say, since you are the Son of God, that puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? So since you are the Son of God... 
turn these stones into bread and eat them. You are divine. You don't need to suffer like you are. You are God incarnate. There's no reason for you to be starving like this, close to death, turn, use your power, turn these stones into bread and eat. There's a temptation there. But it was not the right time, it was not the right place. So Jesus resists. The second temptation, first we had Jesus' physicality tested, now we get his spirituality tested. And this test strikes at the heart of Jesus' previous victory with the first temptation. You see, Jesus knew he was able to withstand Satan because he wasn't just human, he was also spirit as well. And so he was able to push through the hunger if it meant obeying God. But here Satan is tempting his spirituality and he's saying, they're up on top of the temple in the holy city, Jerusalem, and he's saying, jump off. And like it says in scripture, you'll be lowered down by angels and you won't even stub your toe. And this would have been an amazing entrance to Jesus' ministry. If I was Jesus, I would have done it. Because imagine he's there in Jerusalem, it's a hive of activity. All the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawmakers and all the who's who, the important people, the Romans, the Greeks, anyone who's anyone is there in Jerusalem at the temple. And to see Jesus lowered down from the heavens by angels, there'll be no doubt who he was. Everyone wouldn't know he's the Messiah. But it was not God's way. It was not his time and it was not the right way to go about it. And so Jesus refuse that temptation and then finally the third temptation um it's like satan's got nothing left to lose he's just like you know stuff it just just worship me <laughs> come on be a sport just worship me and jesus refuses but this there's a bit more to this temptation because what this one is doing to bow down and worship me and i'll give you the kingdoms of the world satan is offering jesus a way to sidestep the cross because Jesus came to win over the kingdoms of the world, to take them back from Satan. And Satan is saying, I'm going to give them to you, all you've got to do is worship me. But Jesus' reply is just straight down the line. He's saying, get behind me, Satan, because he knows he is on a mission. He is here, he's going to minister for three years, and he's heading straight for that cross. And he cannot afford to allow himself to be tempted to deviate from that. That's why he says the exact same thing to Peter when Peter offers him a way to sidestep the cross. Again, he says, get behind me, Satan. It sounds harsh, but Jesus had to be focused. He had to make his way through to the cross and see that through. And so... Um, and so, yeah, he, he refuses Satan, he pushes him away. And you can actually see some, actually, you can quite literally see the devil in the detail in what Satan is saying here. Because Satan is saying, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Kingdoms, plural. And at that day and age, and in today's day and age as well, what are the kingdoms of the world like? We have divided, warring, bickering kingdoms and countries and empires all over the world. And who really wants that? What God is offering Jesus is so much more, a singular, united kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's something Satan could never offer Jesus. And so Jesus passes all three tests and proves himself to be the Messiah. But he's also, it's also important to us, for us to understand he's not only the Messiah, but he also fulfills all the previous Christ figures that came before him. Most notably, he is the new Adam and he's the new Israel. And they're the two I just want to quickly talk about as well because they're probably the main ones that we see. And so starting with Adam. Firstly, Paul refers to Jesus many times, in Ro especially in Romans, uh, Jesus being the new Adam, the second Adam. You see, through Ad the first Adam, sin entered the world. 
But through Jesus, the second Adam, sin exits the world. It's defeated through Jesus. And Jesus' ministry picks up where Adam's left off. And so Adam started in paradise and is exiled to the wilderness. And Jesus starts his ministry in the wilderness to bring us all back to paradise. Adam failed the test when Satan came to him and said, eat from this tree and you will be like God. But Jesus, when Satan at the same time in the first test comes to him and says, eat, when he shouldn't have, Jesus actually obeys and follows through. And it's that obedience that is the essence of Jesus' sonship to God. And that is what really makes Jesus stand apart from the Christ figures, from anyone else. He's always able to obey. He obeys and obeys and obeys. When we disobey, Jesus continues to obey, and that's the essence of his sonship. Okay, so now to Israel. And there's even more parallels with Israel um, and what Jesus is doing um, in the wilderness. And so, yes, while Jesus is the true Adam, he's also the true Israel as well. And so, again, Jesus picks up where Israel is, uh, left, uh, is left, left, leaves off. So Jesus is out in the wilderness, just like the Israelites, after they exile from Egypt, go out into the wilderness. And that first generation of Israelites are complaining and grumbling and angry with Moses. And because of this, they are unable to go straight from Egypt to the promised land. They then have to wander the wilderness for 40 years while that first generation of Israelites, including Moses, dies off. And so it's a new generation of Israelites that then enter the promised land. Those 40 years of the Israelites in the wilderness echoes the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness as well, that time of testing. And again, there's a testing of eating. And so when you look at the verses that Jesus is quoting back to Satan when he's pushing back, they're just not any verses that he's just plucking out of you know, his knowledge of scripture and just using them because they fit the situation. Each and every one of them specifically address a point in time when the Israelites were wandering the wilderness and, and complaining or tempted or failing whatever test they might be failing. And so it's just like Jesus saying, this is where Israel failed, but this is where I'm going to come through and I'm going to finish what they started. And this is intentional. This is a really important distinction for us to make. And so the first test, uh, Deuteronomy 8, is what Jesus quotes. And he says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on, from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so this is actually taken from the part in Deuteronomy where the Israelites are walking around the desert and they're complaining about the lack of food. But what does God do? He comes through with their daily bread, the manna from heaven, and provides for them. The second uh, test, Deuteronomy 6 uh, is what Jesus quotes, and he says, It is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is actually taken from time when the Israelites are passing through the lands of Massa and Meribah, which Massa means to test, and Meribah actually means to strive. And so while the Israelites were failing the test in the wilderness, Jesus again quotes this scripture and says, I'm coming through, I'm going to pass this test. And then thirdly, Jesus says, Get away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And this is from Deuteronomy 6. And it's talking about when the Israelites are going through all the land, so, and they're conquering the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and uh, the Hivites, uh, whatever other ites <laughs> there are out there. And as we know, the Israelites were tempted to take on their idols, to take their treasures, to worship in their temples. They didn't do a good job of that. We know how that ended, you know, golden calf and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus 
stay true to God and obey the one true God all the way through. And so in these temptations, Jesus, yes, he fills the role of Messiah. He fills the role of Adam, of Israel. But he also fulfills the role of us as well. And I think if anything we can take personally away from these passages around the temptations is that Jesus fulfills us. You see, when I was growing up in Sunday school, and even when I was doing some research to write this sermon for tonight, the common theme that comes up that people pull out of the story of the temptations of Christ is that we need to know Scripture like Jesus knows Scripture. We need to know it back to front, inside out, so whenever the enemy comes at us and tempts us and uses Scripture against us, we know the Scriptures to quote back the enemy, to hold it up like a shield and stop its advance in our life. And yes, that is true and that is important to an extent, but I think it misses the point of this scripture. The point of Jesus going through these temptations isn't so that we be perfect like Jesus is perfect. The whole point of him going through it is because we're not perfect, because we couldn't do it ourselves. We needed Jesus to come through and fulfill what we couldn't do ourselves. And so when we... When we harden ourselves because we feel like, you know, as I'm sure it's like me, you have the Christian guilt where oh, I haven't prayed enough, I haven't read the Bible enough, and you're pushing yourself to do it, and it's just so hard. I remember when I was probably back in my early, mid-20s, I got myself a devotional. I said, I'm going to do this devotional. I'm going to set my alarm half an hour earlier than I normally get up. I'm going to get up at, so it's like 5.30, still dark, read my Bible, do the devotional, spend time with God, and I'm just going to power ahead in my spiritual life. And for the first few weeks, it went well. <laughs> it, it was good, and, and I had some really good time, but it got hard once the novelty wore off, and each day started feeling more and more like a grind, and I was pushing myself to do it, and I remember there'll be some mornings the alarm will go off, it'll be dark, and I'll be lying in bed staring at the ceiling just thinking, I can't do this, I just can't get, drag myself out of bed. This is the last thing I want to do. And then I would, that, that half an hour would turn into 15 minutes, and then that 15 minutes would turn into 10 minutes, and then I'll be late for work, and so I'll be skipping the devotional, which means I've got two to catch up the next day, and then I'll skip the next day, and it's like this debt that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I know spending time with God is supposed to be life-giving, but this felt like anything but. And it wasn't until I spoke to some people in church, some people I, I respect, and they actually said, they actually gave me the permission to allow myself off the hook, to say, give yourself the space and the time not to feel like you have to do this. Because when we have to do it, when we are coming and reading, feel like we're being forced to pray, forced to come to the Bible, it, feels, it only ends in guilt and shame and disappointment and frustration and eventually burnout. Now, I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't be disciplined. Discipline is great, and if you, discipline can get you through a bit of a rough patch and you're still passionate out the other side and you open the scripture and the words speak life to you, that's fantastic. That's great. I applaud you. Keep doing it. But if you're at a point where this feels more like death than life, then give yourself permission to have a break and look for another way to approach God. Look for another way to reignite that passion. What I found, giving myself that time and space, I found that God spoke to me most through just doing the mundane tasks.
tasks. So I'm doing the vacuuming or mowing the lawn or, or washing the dishes. In, actually, in fact, about 12 months ago, I got myself a dishwasher for the first time in ages. And it was great because I could wash all the dishes in a fraction of the time. But then I actually realised I'm missing out on this time where I'll be like washing the dishes and my mind will be empty and then a, a verse or a word or an image or just the lyrics from some of the songs we sing at church will pop into my mind. And that was some of the key and most memorable times I've connected with God just doing those mundane tasks. And so now I hardly ever use a dishwasher because that time washing the dishes, you know, up to my wrists in dirty water somehow connects me with God. And so there are so many different ways that we can connect with God. And there are so many different spiritual practices that we can do as well. Our spiritual practices shouldn't just be a tick and flick. It shouldn't be, have I read the Bible today? Yeah, tick. Have I said my prayers today? Tick. There are so many other ways. If you haven't been to one of our morning services before, try to come along to that because we try all sorts of different spiritual practices. And some you might love, some you might hate, but there are different ways for us to come to God. And because it's my hope and prayer that every one of us in this church is able to feel passionate when we come to God. And when we open the Bible, it's because we want to read Scripture, not because we feel we have to, because we have to be perfect like Jesus was perfect. Because that's really the tension we walk as Christians, isn't it? Is that we aim to be perfect like God, knowing inevitably we will fail. We will fail, but that's okay, because Jesus has come through and done it all for us. And it's amazing that we worship a God like that. And we worship a God that understands us better than we understand ourselves. And that's going to bring me just to my final point I want to raise tonight. And that's around a verse in Hebrews that's often connected to the temptations of Christ. And this is Hebrews 4.15, and it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And I've had a few problems with this verse because I think, has Jesus really been tempted in every way, like every way, these three temptations? Did it really cover every possible scenario where he could be tempted in? Did G, was Jesus ever tempted to park in the disabled car spot at the corner shop because all the other spots were full when he only had to run in for milk and bread? It was only going to be a couple of minutes. Was that a temptation to Christ? Probably not. And so, no, I don't think it's right that we can say that Jesus was tempted in every one of the infinite ways that you could possibly be tempted. But this is what I think Paul is saying. He's saying that because Jesus never gave in to the temptations, he understands it better than any of us ever could. Brian McLaren sums us up really beautifully in his um, book, A New Kind of Christian. This is probably one of my favourite quotes. I've actually pulled it out in a few sermons, so it might sound familiar, but I'm going to give it to you again tonight. And this is just the uh, summarised version. He says, You don't find out how strong the wind is by lying down. And you don't find out how true, sorry, you don't find out the true strength of an enemy by surrendering. So, as Christ was the only one to never sin, he is the only one who has ever felt the true extent of its allure and temptation. And that is so true. Jesus is the only one who has stood the test of time and never bowed down to sin never bowed down to the temptation. And that makes him stronger and more experienced than every one of us because the longer we resist something, the harder it gets. And Jesus is the only one that saw it all the way through to the end. So he gets it. He gets it on a visceral human level as well as a spiritual level. He knows the call of sin better than any of us because he's the only one that resists it. 
He obeyed when we disobeyed. His yes, it completes our no. And not just for us individually, but for all the human race corporately as well. Jesus knows the temptations. He came into the world to fulfill the Old Testament, to be the Messiah, to be the new Adam, and to be the new Israel as well. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.